I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. In last week's episode, we focused on climate justice and communities of color here in the U.S. And like many of these topics, it's hard to fit all the relevant content into one episode. So we decided this week to continue our discussion of climate justice focused at more of a global scale. So how it's impacting nations differently, disparities, and who's contributing to climate change versus who's being hit the hardest. Before we go there, last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released the latest installment of their climate assessment. Todd, do you want to give us the world's shortest summary? Yeah, so the report had, you know, a focus, uh, you know, on mitigation with the emission targets that we need to hit to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And those targets are that we we peak, we have to peak in 2025, we have to cut 43% by 2030, and we have to hit zero emissions by 2050. And, you know, obviously hitting these targets is possible, but it's going to require some uh, deep cuts in both carbon and methane emissions. You know, we will do this by switching to renewables, uh, installing carbon capture on existing fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, improving energy efficiency and energy conservation. So, yeah, that's that's what needs to be done. Uh, What are your thoughts? You know, looking at this through kind of an energy infrastructure perspective, you know, as somebody who's worked in energy, it feels like a huge lift to to make the changes that we need to make, but definitely not outside the you know the realm of the possible, especially when you look at the international response with the situation in Ukraine and the desire to you know move away from Russian oil and gas as quickly as possible. I mean, you had Germany within the course of a you know a couple of weeks move up their decarbonization target by over a decade, and you had you know the EU more broadly talking about all these accelerated measures to you know to get them off of, of fossil fuels, and you think if we could take that same sort of focus and drive, and you know put it towards addressing what the IPCC has has laid out for us here, I think it becomes very doable. You know, it's it's not going to be easy, but you know, I think it's I think it's still possible. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I they're aggressive for sure, but I think we have to do everything we can to to hit them mm-hmm. or, you know, obviously risk a future that I don't think, you know, any of us want to live in. So Yeah. It's kind of a will thing, we, we, you know, at this point, like we just got to have the will to, to do it and, uh, you know, make some collective sacrifices to get this done. Yeah. And I, I think that is the hard part, right, is helping people understand that, you know, sacrifices today are going to be well worth it when you compare it to, you know, the forced sacrifices that we're going to be mm. making if we don't mm-hmm. hit these targets. So good point. Yeah. So with that, let's transition to this week's Reason for Hope, and actually have two this week. Renewable energy, solar and wind in particular, reached a major milestone. And, you know, in 2021, for the first time, produced 10% of global electricity. And if you combine in hydro and nuclear, it actually gets us pretty close to 40% of global power demand being met with non-carbon sources. 
so it's awesome exciting right i mean yeah a long ways to go to net zero but i think sure. you know we've got to celebrate the fact that we've we've gotten this far with uh with wind and solar yeah in a pretty short amount of time i mean it's growing fast it is and i i think definitely a good picture exciting to see and you know you might be asking well we just talked about these targets what do we need to to hit them and to get to you know 2030 where we need to have cut our emissions by you know, between 40 and 50%, wind and solar need to continue to grow at a rate of about 20% per year. And that's actually not outside some of the previous growth that we've seen. That's good news. It is good news. And I think the other, you know, potential unsung hero in all of this is, you know, is energy efficiency. I mean, we, the reality is we, you know, as a globe consume more and more energy and I think we forget about the fact that while we need to convert to renewables, you know, we also ought to be focusing on reducing our demand. And that's where, you know, energy efficiency measures can make a can make a huge impact. For sure. The other bright spot this past week were the global demonstrations being led by scientists calling for climate action. Had scientists chaining themselves to oil-friendly banks, occupying the steps of, of government buildings, and basically trying to, you know draw awareness to the fact that that the clock is ticking and we need to we need to move forward. It's pretty telling when they've reached a point where they're willing to come out and 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 protest uh, because of the, you know, what their findings show and, and the need for us to move in this direction. So I don't think we should take it lightly seeing that, you know, all these folks came out and were willing to get arrested to to make their point. Yeah. Don't look up. Right. That's basically what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what's happening right now. Yeah. I just hope we're headed for a different ending, you know? Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, and more, you know, more locally here in the U.S., uh, a group called West Virginia Rising staged a peaceful protest where they blocked the entrance to the coal plant where uh, Senator Joe Manchin sells his coal, which I couldn't resist putting in here because that kind of made my week. Um you know, I don't. I don't know that uh, Mr. Manchin is going to give up selling his coal anytime soon. But I think it is good to continue to draw awareness to the fact that you know he's basically profiting at at all of our expense by continuing to to block climate legislation. Yeah. Well, I feel bad for him. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no, I. What can you say about that? He's definitely got a stranglehold on a lot of. On a lot of politics here in the United States right now, it's kind of a crazy system to think that, you know, one person gets to wield that much power in some ways. Yeah. And, and I mean, in fairness, I know that, that the media tends to always focus on, you know, Joe Manchin because he represents that key vote that Democrats need to be able to pass mm-hmm. key climate provisions. But that that's in no way, you know, abdicates the other... 50, you know, Senate Republicans who have been unwilling thus far to, you know, to, to vote for climate legislation. So, yeah, well, I expect them to be useless. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I think there needs to be more focus on some of those, you know, senators that I think do recognize that it's a problem, but, you know, maybe conveniently have been able to sort of hide because, you know, Joe Manchin has been in the spotlight. Um, Sure. So, you know, all jokes aside about Senator Joe Manchin, I think it's exciting to look at this past week and see us hit both a, you know, major renewable energy milestone 
and to see, you know, these these protests taking place because the reality is we need to continue to push on the legislative front and having, you know, the visibility of protests, I think I think can really help with that. So pivoting to our main topic today, climate justice, we thought it might be good context to start out with talking a little bit about historical emissions and you know, depending on how you want to slice and dice things, you can, you know, look at historical, you know, greenhouse gas emissions through the lens of like per capita. And, or you can also look at them through the lens of total emissions. So independent of the population of a country, you know, how much have they contributed to, to climate change? And today, partially because I think it simplifies it, we're just going to be looking at historical emissions through the lens of total emissions. So if you look at the largest historical emitters, not surprisingly, the United States is top on that list at, at 25%. The EU is a, is a close second at 22%. And China is the third at you know close to 13%. So while China might be the largest emitter of carbon on an annual basis, they still aren't close to you know the United States in, in total historical emissions. Right. Well, and it's important too, to, to think about historic emissions, especially with carbon, right? Because it compounds upon itself. So it's not like every year you start clean again. It's not like, well, the history doesn't matter. It's what happens this next year. It is. And to your point, I mean, the US and the EU have pushed more carbon up there than anybody. Yeah. And if you were to sort of look at, you know, each country having kind of a, a carbon budget, if you will, based on its population, let's just say we, we've blown through ours and then oh, some. Man, yeah. Um, and, and just to put those numbers in context, I think it's useful to kind of look at the other end of the scale. And the entire continent of South America has only contributed 3% to historical emissions. And the same is true with the entire continent of Africa. And yeah, I mean, just stop there for a second, because it really is astounding when you look at it in that context that yeah. you know you have the two major continents in the Southern Hemisphere that together have only, you know, emitted 6% of all historical greenhouse gas emissions. It's crazy. Yeah. So the, the reality is there are many at-risk nations in the world when it comes to climate change. And there are, you know, kind of multiple indices that look at like climate vulnerability. But, you know, the two primary factors tend to be what, you know, is a nation looking at with respect to future climate impacts. Mm-hmm. And then, and then what are their, you know, their, their resources to be able to, to deal with those? So, you know, the, the worst case combinations come when you have a country that's looking at, you know, big climate impacts and then at the same time doesn't have any money to be able to deal with them. Sure. And then another risk factor that you can lay on top of that is when countries also have, you know, large population growth. And so that just, you kind of create this perfect storm. So one example in, in Africa is the Central African Republic, which is actually forecast to be kind of the most at-risk country when it comes to climate change. For those who don't know where they are, the Central African Republic, as it would indicate, is a landlocked country in the, in the center of Africa. They're forecast to experience huge population growth between now and 2050, upwards of almost 80% when you compare the, you know, that to the global average of, of 30%. So mm-hmm. Layer on top of that, they're one of the poorest nations in the world. And then, you know, tragically, they also have, you know, ongoing political and, and ethnic conflicts dating back to 2013. You have almost 600,000 people that have been, you know, displaced because of them, another 3 million in need of humanitarian assistance. Mm-hmm. And 
being, you know, more agricultural based, you know, farmers rely heavily on a rainy season, you know, they don't benefit obviously from stored water like we do here in the US. And so you can see how, you know, before you even layer in any climate impacts, they're they're not well prepared, right? Yeah. Things are already obviously a struggle in the Central African Republic. But I think then it's useful to step back and look at, you know, how much have they contributed to the problem. And the reality is, you know, an average person in the Central African Republic has a, you know, carbon footprint of 0.04 metric tons per year mm-hmm. versus an average person in the US, which sits at over 14 metric tons per year. So right. on the order of, you know, 350 times higher. Basically, one trip to the mall here in the US, we emit more carbon than they do in an entire year. And for me, that really just underscores the problem we're dealing with here, right? You've you've got these countries that have done next to nothing in terms of contributing to climate change, and yet they're going to be suffering massive impacts as a result of it. So, Did I get it wrong? No, you, you got it right. And to, to speak to the population growth thing, obviously a number like growing your population by 77% is, you know, outrageous. I mean, the global average of 32% sounds high to me. Right. That seems high. Uh, but if you look at it in perspective, when you start talking about, you know, per capita emissions... If you look at the U.S., I think we're slated to grow 15% by the year 2050. That's 330 million. 15% of that's close to 50 million people. So we're going to have 50 million people pumping out, you know, 350 times more carbon than they will. So, you know, I mean, we got to look at our own population growth, right? Our 15% is worse than their 77 for the rest of the world by far. For sure. Unfortunately, their population growth hurts them because... They're going to be in a stickier spot because of all of this, and they don't necessarily have the resources to take care of all those people. Right, and and I, you know, I know we've we've talked on this podcast about carbon footprint and how you know it's important not to get too wrapped up in carbon footprint and have it be a distraction to sure. to larger actions that we need to be able to solve climate change. But in this case, I think it it really speaks to the inequity that we're dealing yeah. with here, right? Exactly. We've, we've got this massive problem, and you know, this other country is going to suffer a much worse situation than we are. Sure. And has little to no resources to deal with it. And oh, by the way, they didn't do anything to contribute to the problem in the first place. Yeah, exactly. You know, another example in Africa is the country of Mozambique. Again, you know, one of the poorest nations out there ranks third in Africa for vulnerability to climate change. Mm. And as some might remember back in 2019, they had two massive tropical cyclones that hit a month apart. That's right. Which was a first, you know, they never had two to hit the country in one season. You ended up with, you know, massive flooding, you know, destruction of homes and infrastructure. And at the end of the day, you know, millions of people um, left without a place to live, lack of sanitation, drinking water. And it's like, you know, we can look at a, when a hurricane hits the the U.S., it's, it's a tragic thing for sure. Yeah. But when you talk about the resources available to rebuild, we bounce back, right? I mean, it, it takes time. You know, it's it's not to diminish the damage that gets caused when when a hurricane happens here. But, you know, let's be honest. I mean, Mozambique doesn't have the ability to come in and throw their grid back together, put down new roads and, and uh, cranking out new houses. So yeah. it, it just shows how much worse, you know, when one of these things happens, how much worse off they're going to be and really, you know, dampens their potential for prospering in the long run. 
Right. So again, you know, there are many nations out there. We didn't talk about, you know, some of the island nations out there that are already, you know, losing large tracts of land due to due to sea level rise. So we could go on for a long time about all of the countries out there that are going to be massively, you know, impacted by by climate change and, you know, in almost all cases contributed very little to the problem in the first place. That's sort of a, you know, dark way to think about things, but I think it's important mm-hmm. to point it out because it just underscores the injustice that is unfolding if, you know, wealthy nations don't step up to the plate to help, right? right? Because it's not like, you know, many of these countries weren't struggling before climate change. And, Definitely. you know, and so now you're going to layer on top this thing that's going to cause more flooding and droughts and storms. And, and yeah, it just, it's like, how can we expect them to, to be able to weather it? Right. So I guess looking at, you know, all these at-risk nations, the question obviously becomes, you know, well, what, you know, what are there in terms of solutions? And at a, you know, at a global scale, the UN and the, you know, annual climate conferences have really focused on trying to have the wealthy countries that have been responsible for emissions step up to the plate and provide financial resources to help developing countries. And there's sort of two primary categories when you're talking about climate-focused funding. The first being, you know, mitigation and adaptation. So helping, you know, these nations skip, you know, fossil fuels altogether or transition away from them, as well as, you know, helping them create resilient infrastructure so that they're, they can weather that, you know, that storm more or taking steps to ensure that they're more prepared for that, for that drought. Mm -hmm. So those are both well and good, but the reality is, we aren't going to avoid impacts to climate change at this point. There are going to be impacts. And so yeah, already are. The second category, you know, is is called loss and damage, and that's really mm-hmm. focused on the fact that we're going to have these extreme weather events like, you know, the cyclones in Mozambique, and we're going to have slow onset changes like sea level rise that we need to help these countries with independent of helping them, you know, mitigate emissions and and potentially adapt because there's only so much adapting you can do right. if your if your country is going to be underwater in, in 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, when we talk about loss and damage, to some degree, the wealthy countries have been reticent to to have the conversation because there's sort of this fear of of implying that there's legal liability mm. that they bear for for you know putting forth their emissions, right? Which I suppose I understand, but at the well, same time, feel like, well, I mean, isn't there some legal liability or shouldn't there be here, given the fact that these countries haven't created this problem? You know, like if you put a bunch of pollution up into the air here in the U.S., we have environmental laws that says you can be, say you can be fine. I mean, I don't, I don't see how this is really any different. But that, that being said, you know, that, that has been a major reason that this has sort of been a non, non-starter. The, the good news right. is... At the last climate conference in Scotland this past November, COP26, as some might remember, there was finally an agreement to start having a conversation about this in the upcoming climate conference in Egypt. So no real commitments in terms of funding yet, Mm -hmm. but I think there's at least a recognition that we need to figure out how to handle loss and damage because, you know, climate impacts are already taking place and, and these countries in many cases, don't have near the resources they need to to be able to deal with it. Right. I know we've talked about this topic, too, when we when we did our COP, 
you know, 26 episode, we talked a little about funding for adaptation and mitigation. I remember that was kind of a big topic at that, at that conference and the commitment from developed countries was for 2020 to 2025 was supposed to be a hundred billion a year. And we won't hit that target until 2023. Uh, and in 2025, nobody even knows what that's going to be. So that's a upcoming right. discussion. I do know that in 2019, I read that uh, we were at about 80 billion, which sounds good. I mean, that's, you know, you're only 20, 20 billion away from a uh, hundred billion. But I also read that 71% of that was loans and not just grants, which right. doesn't really kind of honor the, you know, the, the heart of what I thought that the commitment was supposed to be, you know, and the, the other thing, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that anybody even has to ask for this. You, you think it, that would just, like you said, would just kind of be obvious. I think the other part of this is that a lot of these developing countries are like, they want to, you know, what helped us develop so fast and so cheaply was reliance on fossil fuels, which is something right. that I'm sure everybody would like to, to emulate. And then now everybody's like, well, yeah, we're not going to do that. And, and it's like, well, then, you know, to me, the hundred billion should just be a given. If you want a loan, the loan should be to develop renewables. You know, that, that's, that's what I think. But, uh, they didn't invite me to speak at it or anything, so I guess I'll have to wait till next time. <laughs> you know, we're still a ways off from Egypt. Maybe you, yeah. maybe that, inv- maybe, maybe that invites in the mail somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, we were talking about this a little before we started recording. Given a loan for adaptation and mitigation is pretty ridiculous when you think about the fact that we created the problem in the first place. It's like, it's it doesn't like make any sense. Borrowing your friend's car, wrecking it, and then offering to loan them the money <laughs> to fix it. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, maybe, you know, maybe here in the US, we can finally build some political will and tax those uh, windfall record profits that the oil companies are seeing. And, you know, I'm sure that'd go a long ways toward, uh, you know, the US providing their their fair share. Yeah. I'm sure they've got plenty of it. But yeah, I, I, I would be curious to know at these negotiations what the dialogue is about and why the reticence, right? Is this just because they don't think that they're going to have support for it back home, right? Is this mm-hmm. the assumption that, you know, you and I as citizens of a wealthy country aren't going to be supportive of this? I mean, I, mm-hmm. it just, it kind of defies logic to me because if you, as soon as you see those emission numbers and the the differences in contribution and then you know that the countries that contributed least are going to get hit the worst yeah it's like how can you not step up to the plate right i mean sure there's going to be people that say you know what whatever right it's their problem um but yeah i got to believe that if you had a cross section of of these countries their citizens that were at the table looking at the problem that it would be a lot easier to to write that check. I, I just, right. you know, I guess it's my lack of understanding of how these negotiations, you know, pan out. But hundred billion a year is not a lot of money when you consider all the countries we're talking about here. So yeah, it, it's, it's just, just greed. <laughs> it's just greed. <laughs> yeah, it it really is. I guess now that you know, folks have had to hear us rant about it. I guess <laughs> the, the question becomes, you know. What can we as individuals do? Because that's what we're about here at Climate Optimists is getting engaged. And 
for this week, we'd like to encourage folks in the U.S. to tell the Biden administration that the U.S. needs to step up to the plate and provide its fair share of funding to global climate finance and, and to really take the lead on this discussion of, of loss and damage. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have ever been to the Climate Action Tracker site, which looks at all of the policies and, and commitments regarding, you know, cutting emissions as well as money being committed to help other countries, the U.S. ranks is critically insufficient. So, you know, we're at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to providing funding to help these countries, while at the same time being the largest, you know, historical emitter. So, again, reach out to the Biden administration. We'll have talking points, you know, on our website to help with that. But I think if we all, you know, make an effort to send a note and help move the needle there. And for our European listeners, the good news is the EU has been a little more generous in helping support climate finance. The EU's rating is insufficient versus critically insufficient. But I still think, again, there's an opportunity there to push those numbers up because the reality is 100 billion sounds like a lot. But then when you spread it over the entire continent of Africa, South America, and you know all these countries in Asia, it's, it's not that much money. And so again, if you're in the EU, take the step to call on your lawmakers to you know support additional funding for you know climate mitigation, adaptation, and you know step up on on loss and damage. Climate action tracker, huh? Yeah, the climate action tracker. Have you not seen the climate action tracker? No, I it makes me think of the Santa tracker. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's like how little... you get this done. You tie this climate action to that Santa. Show those kids that on Christmas Eve. See how fast that Santa moves. It's going to move as fast as we get on this cl- climate stuff. And those kids think they're not getting any presents. You can guarantee there's going to be some hell raised. <laughs> There'll be some moving, some climate action. You know, I think when it comes to writing letters, to kids do a lot better job writing their letters to Santa than we do to our to exactly. our government. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I, this is not an easy topic, and while. I think there are some solutions. The reality is right now, you know, it's it's a rough picture. But I think we shouldn't gloss over the fact that that there is this injustice that's that's underway right now. And I think the more that people understand how big of an injustice it is, I think the more we build support for for, you know, stepping up to the plate and and providing the kind of money that we need to to help these countries deal with what's coming with climate change. So I think that's a wrap for this week. Again, head to our website for for talking points on how to write that that message to your lawmakers on climate finance. But thanks, you know, thanks for tuning in. Come back and join us next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimists is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. <laughs>